0: So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would please speak to us through your word. Help us to be more connected to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Good to see all of you here. So before I preach this, I have to do a quick little disclaimer. We're doing uh, worship through music on two different Sundays. So last Sunday we did it here, and I preached this sermon over there in traditional. Now they are doing worship through music in traditional, and now I'm preaching this sermon here. So if you were in traditional last week and you've heard this sermon, you can leave if you would like and... And, and go over and join them over there. Worship through music in traditional service. Or if you want to hear it again, you can stay. Or if you haven't heard the sermon, but you anticipate you don't want to hear the sermon, you can also leave. So <laughs> permission to just get up and walk out, and I won't be insulted. All right. A literary scholar named Northrop Frye Uh, who's not a Christian, nevertheless, he says that the story of Jesus so resonates with the human experience and is so ingrained in culture that even when Coca-Cola does an ad campaign in China, they're reflecting biblical themes. And that's one of the reasons that we're doing this sermon series where we are pairing different holiday movies with uh, scripture to help us see Christmas through different eyes. It is the greatest story ever told, and so you see elements of it even in a goofy movie like Elf, which is the movie we're going to look at today. And if you don't know the movie, it's about an orphan named Buddy who is adopted by an elf and is raised in Santa's workshop in the North Pole. So you have to suspend a little bit of disbelief to get into the whole elf thing. And then he learns that he's not an elf, that he's actually a human, and that his mom was young when she gave him up for adoption, and then she died, but his biological dad doesn't even know that he is alive. So Buddy goes to New York to find his dad, where his dad lives. And he wants his father's love. The problem is his dad wants nothing to do with them because Buddy is embarrassing and weird. And you see that in in a scene where he has dinner with his dad and his dad's family for the first time. And I hesitated a little bit to show this clip, but the team of elders who critique my sermons every Thursday morning, godly elders told me to show this clip anyway, so I'm totally hiding behind them and bravely showing you the clip. Okay, roll it. So, will you be staying with us then? You mean I can stay? Of course you can. Emily. How, how long do you think you'll be with us? I, I hadn't really planned it out, but I was thinking like forever. Emily, can I just speak to you for a minute in the uh, kitchen, please? Are you crazy? He cannot stay here. Clearly he has some serious issues. We can't just throw him out in the snow. Why not? He loves the snow. He's told me 15 times. Walter, he's your son did you hear that you are so weird i don't know if that's appropriate for church or not you can send your emails sdudley just Send them this way if you, that bugs you in church. It, it feels kind of out of place, but it's, I've got a reason for showing that clip, which I'll get to later in the sermon. I promise there's a reason for that particular one. The movie is all about the search for the Father, which I think resonates very deeply with the human experience because we are all looking for love and acceptance and a place to belong, but sometimes we feel rejected. We feel like we're a little bit out of place. And sometimes we get that from our earthly fathers. I hear this in a lot of the counseling I do with men and women. Men in particular uh, long for their father's approval and want their father to say that they are a man, and if they don't get it, that it can just leave you kind of wrecked. Women have the same experience. Longing for dad's approval, sometimes never getting it. You know, no no achievement was ever good enough, right? You you, you got on base, but if you just adjusted your swing, you could have hit a home run. You got a B plus, which means you could have gotten an A-, minus, all of that stuff. Or dad wasn't around because of divorce or death. Or dad was always too busy or too critical. So a lot of folks are stri- striving and achieving and trying to, to earn approval from their dad. You know, they're CEO and they still don't have their dad's approval. And they're longing for it. But sometimes it's not just a parent's love that we want. We want that, but sometimes we just want to be accepted and loved by other people. We just want, but instead, a lot of times we feel judged and feel out of place. Whether it's a boss that is always on your case, or maybe neighbors who drive nicer cars than you, and it kind of makes you feel out of place. Maybe even coming to church sometimes makes you feel out of place. One Sunday I wasn't preaching. I was up with our Sunday school kids, and I was looking out the window watching you all come to church, and y'all are a pretty good-looking crew. Most of you. You know, clothes all nice, hair looks good, a little bit too much product sometimes. But, you know, you're looking good. And and maybe you look around and you go, man, these people, they have got it all together. I just do not belong here. I don't fit. Like maybe some Sundays you get up late, hassle with the kids to get them ready, argued with your spouse all the way to church. And then as soon as you get out of the car, you're all like, praise God. I'm going to kill my spouse on the drive home, but praise Jesus. Any of you ever do that? Any of you need to do that today? You're all like, oh God, how does he know? Because I hack into your life for a living, that's why. Reality is we all want love, we all want acceptance for who we are, but we, warts and all, but sometimes we just feel like we're out of place or feel like no accomplishment is ever good enough. So we are always having to strive, earn, achieve. To get the acceptance we want. Recently, my son and oldest daughter met some of their academic and sports goals that they had set for themselves. We didn't set them, they set them. So we said, you know, I I decided to buy them a milkshake to say, well done. At which point, my youngest daughter said, well, don't I get a milkshake for something? And I said, well, for what? And then she paused for a minute and then she said, I'm the only good mooded one in the whole family. Which is absolutely true, right? And I love that. As such a youngest kid, right? Don't I get a milkshake for being moi? So she is going to get a milkshake too for giving me a sermon illustration. We all want to just be given a milkshake for who we are, right? But everything, everything we experience says, "Now you're not good enough. You've got to earn it. You've got to prove yourself. Every religion says either you're not enlightened enough, so you better fix that, or you're not good enough, so you better fix that. All of human philosophy, every religion, the 10,000 years of recorded human history, all of it, all of it says you got to earn, you got to achieve, you got to do to be accepted, to be loved, and it's never good enough. All of it says that, except for one glaring, radical, revolutionary exception, and his name is Jesus. And today we read two short parables that Jesus tells about looking for something, like Buddy's looking for his dad. A shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep to find the one lost one, and a woman who searches all night to find just one coin. And Jesus' point is this it is in God's nature to look for you, it is in God's character to search for you. The acceptance, the Father, the love you are searching for has been searching for you your whole life long. Because that's just what God does. Now you might ask, well, then if He's searching for me, how come He hasn't found me yet? Because I'm not even sure I believe God exists, let alone experience any kind of his presence. Well, that's because there are some barriers between us and God. But what Christmas shows is that God comes in the person of Jesus to tear down those barriers between us. And I can't talk about every barrier because there's just tons of them, but I want to look at three that come from this text that we just read. And the first is this. Jesus tears down the barrier of our own lostness. The metaphor of sheep in this passage is a good one because sheep are really stupid. And when the shepherd comes after the sheep that's lost, you know what the sheep does? The sheep runs away. Sees the shepherd coming, the sheep just runs away. Right? Is that sheep? It always feels plural to me. Is, what, is it a shoep? I don't know. It's sheep. Whatever singular of sheep is, the sheep runs away. And I, that's just like, that's us. Right? I mean, we see God and we're like, ooh, here's God. Oh, here he comes. Oh, a promotion. Oh, a new vacation. Oh, a new relationship. And boom, we're off. But God never gives up. And if all else fails, he will use the circumstances of our lives, including those difficult circumstances of our lives, to draw us back to himself. Jesus says that when the shepherd finds the sheep, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And we read that verse and we think, oh, what? How, isn't that a nice image? How sweet. You think of Sunday school pictures. Ain't that sweet? No. See, my grandfather raised sheep, and any shepherd will tell you that sheep are so stupid, and because they keep running away from the shepherd, sometimes the shepherd has to wrestle the sheep to the ground, throw it on its back, tie its legs together, sling it over its shoulders, and drag the sheep home. Now, some of y'all, that's you right now, right? That's me. Sometimes I have to be dragged back to the father, sometimes through those difficult circumstances. But God never gives up. He is always searching for us reaching out to us, through those thoughts that really aren't our thoughts, through the other people that he puts in our lives, the very circumstances of our lives. He's always trying to get us back. Second barrier Jesus removes, and he removes it with ferocity, is religion. And that's what's the issue in the text that we read today. See, these aren't just two nice stories Jesus happens to tell. No, 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 no. This is part of an argument that he is having with the religious leaders of his day. Notice how it starts. It says, The Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. That is, it's a rebuke to the religious leaders who didn't like it that Jesus hung out with all the, quote, wrong people. Tax collectors who were white-collar criminals who price gouged, who jacked up the prices on the taxes to their fellow Jews and then pocketed the difference. And prostitutes drove the religious leaders crazy that Jesus hung out with prostitutes, which is so symbolically significant. Because you see, throughout the entire Old Testament, Israel is described as a prostitute nation, always running after other gods. But by the time you get to the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, the prostitute becomes the bride of Christ, which is a symbol for the church. And then what is vice in the prostitute becomes virtue in the church, namely that she is welcoming to all customers. But religious people hate that, and so they put up all kinds of barriers to folks experiencing Jesus. So these two parables that Jesus tells here, they basically a massive smackdown to the religious leaders, basically saying, shut up to the religious leaders. Whack, 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 stop it. See, if Jesus is rightly preached and understood, religious people hate it. If religious people don't hate it, it's not Jesus you're talking about. Because see, Jesus here is changing all the rules. He's saying your goodness or your badness, that's not the issue. In fact, your goodness can be a bigger barrier between you and God than your badness. Now, there there is such a thing as consequences for our actions and accountability and all of that. And yes, we should try to follow Jesus' commands, not to earn his love, but because it's just a better way to live. But if we think we make ourselves right with God by all of our good deeds, that that makes us our own savior and it leads to pride. And that was the problem with the religious leaders in Jesus' day. Very proud. As Mark Twain said, they were good in the worst sense of that word. See, Jesus here is saying sin isn't breaking the rules. It's being your own God. And breaking the rules is one way of doing that, but keeping them is another. If it makes you think that you're you're your own savior, and if you do it to prove yourself. And the problem with religion is it makes it all about the rules, not about the relationship. Plus, religion puts all kinds of barriers between us and God. And religious people love to do that. In my former church, there was a woman who would go around, and if anyone was wearing jeans to church, she would chastise them and say that they needed to dress up better. So we had to hunt her down and tell her to stop doing that. Now, I need to be honest, just a little bit of family truth-telling time, that has actually occasionally happened here in this congregation. It doesn't happen very often, but it's occasionally happened here. On several occasions, I've had first-time visitors tell me that they like the church, but that someone came up to them afterward and said, what makes you think you can dress this way and go to this church? Next time you come back, you need to be dressed up better. Now, I need to say that when I preached this sermon over in traditional last week when I got to that line, there was an, the, the gasp of horror was audible and loud over there. In fact, I even saw people looking around going, who did that? I'm going to just kill them, right? So you need to know that's not In fact, our elders, some of our elders knew I was preaching this, so they all wore jeans last, last uh, Sunday and set up in the front, right? Just kind of as a, mm, take that, right? So you need to know that is not the heart of our traditional congregation at all. It's just, it's just a few poems, but it still happens. It doesn't happen very often, but it still has happened. Probably not anymore after this service, but <laughs> it is e- or after this sermon. It's even happened to some of our staff, which is very awkward. You know, when it's a staff, poor Chris Martinson has gotten it in the past. <laughs> now, don't get me wrong, it is good to dress up to come to church. Some of you do. For many people, dressing up is part of how they experience the majesty of God. It's also good to come really casually as a reminder that Jesus loves us just as we are. There's nothing in the Bible that says you have to dress a certain way, right? But religious people sometimes try to make it sound like, oh, the verse where we got to give God our best. Oh, please. That's not about our clothes, okay? That's about service and forgiveness and money. It's actually really about our money. Some of you are like, back to the clothes, Pastor, back to the clothes. All right, so let's just be a community. We don't judge someone for dressing down, and dressing casually, but let's not dress, judge someone for dressing up. Oh, they must be kind of a snob. No, maybe that's just how they worship. Both are just fine. The only rule we have here is that you wear something, okay? <laughs> for the love of all that's holy, please wear something. That's all we're asking, all right? Although once, although once, a person from a nudist colony did come here on a Sunday. Some of you are like, ooh, can we have that story? No, no. Another sermon. (laughs) Jesus tears down the barriers of our lostness, of religiosity, and finally, our sense of shame. Two stories we read today are followed by the story of the prodigal son. Many of you know it. If you're not familiar, just continue reading in Luke 15. About two sons and the younger one says to his dad, Give me my inheritance now, which in that culture was the most disrespectful thing you could possibly say. Basically, I wish you were dead, Dad goes to a far country, squanders it all away, and then he experiences a sense of shame. Plus, he's poor and he doesn't, he's hungry. So he says, I'll go back to my father and I'll say this. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Oh, do you hear the pain in that sentence? There's those things we've done that we don't, or thought that we don't tell anybody. Nobody, because they fill us with shame. And then there's all the ways that our culture says that you're not worthy. I got a B, not an A. I'm no longer worthy. I didn't get the promotion. I am no longer worthy. I'm divorced. I blew the presentation. I lost the account. I did this or that embarrassing thing. I'm no longer worthy. I'm assistant director instead of director. I drive a Kia instead of a Lexus. I have a three-bed, two-bath, not a four-bed, three-bath house. I am no longer worthy. And everything in our culture says, oh boy, how do you better believe you're not worthy. Look at that person over there. Look at that other person. Look at them, look at them, look at them. So much more worthy than you. Look at them, just look at them. They have C's and O's in their job title. You don't. Their kids got into Harvard. Your kids had to settle for their safety school, Stanford. <laughs> that person, they have more friends than you. Look how good looking they are. They have all of their hair. Hypothetical example, not drawn from real life. And so we see all that, and then we frantically try to posture and pretend and pose and pretend we got it together and prove ourselves and all of that stuff. And here's where that video clip makes the point I want to make. We all have uncouth, embarrassing things about us, just like Buddy the elf at the dinner table. He just hadn't learned how to fake it yet. And as a consequence, by the end of the movie, he gets his father's love who accepts him just as he is. In Luke, as the prodigal son is returning home, the next nine words are the Bible in a nutshell. But while he was still a long way off. Not when he'd arrived, not when he'd gotten his act together, while he was still a long way off. What does the father do? Father doesn't stand there on the porch, arms crossed, tapping his feet going, well, this better be good. Uh-uh. His father ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And in that culture, it was shameful for older men to run. They had to hike up their robe to do it. It was considered undignified, scandalous, embarrassing buddy at the dinner table. But that's not the worst of it. According to every expectation in that culture, the first hearers of this parable would have expected the next line to be, when the father saw his son, he picked up a shovel and beat him to death. That would have been what they expected the story to be. Because after all, the son deserved it, right? Humiliated his dad, and the only way for his dad to get back his dignity would be to beat his son to death, not to mention deter other sons from doing the same thing. See how scandalous Jesus is? How, how, what an enemy of religion Jesus is? All the other gods in every other religion say, Here are the rules. I'll wait on the porch while you try to obey. But the God who came to us in Jesus sacrifices his dignity, willing to die a shameful criminal's death on a cross. Only that God jumps off the porch and runs to us. And then just when the son starts into his little speech, the father interrupts him, doesn't want to hear it. father interrupts him and says says instead, welcome home, and then throws that son a big old party. Does an end run around his shame. In fact, by kissing the son, the father in that culture would have been symbolically transferring the son's shame onto himself, just like Jesus takes on our sin on the cross to free us from our sense of shame. So, when you think you aren't worthy because of this, that, or the other, or when there's something going on you've done or you've thought and you feel a little guilty about it, you want to know what God says to you? He says, Don't bother me with that stuff. I took care of that 2,000 years ago on a cross. Now, let's you and I, let's go have some fun together, shall we? And that same grace is available to the older brother in this story. The older brother who's been obeying all the rules. He didn't run away. Maybe more out of a sense of self-righteousness than love, but whatever. He has obeyed all the rules. He's kept all the rules. So when little bro who ran away gets the party, older bro gets mad and refuses to go in. And I don't blame him. Do you? It is not fair. So he stays outside and pouts. But the father does not wait for the older son to come into the party. Instead, his father went out and pleaded with him. Because you see, the God revealed in Jesus is the God who is always coming to us. Always searching for us, not waiting for us to come to him. And here's the thing, you don't search for something unless it's really valuable. He is searching for you because you are valuable. And then the elder brother says this, all these years I've been slaving away for you, which shows he's got a false view of the father because that's what the devil does, convinces us that God is an ogre. And I never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. Do you hear the pain in that? I've done everything right. Isn't it enough? Bad. You can just hear it. And then the father says, my son... And the Greek word there is different than the word used for son in the rest of the story. It's more tender. It means, my boy, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. In other words, thank you for wanting to do the right thing. It is good that you want to do the right thing, but that's not why you're in my house. You're in my house because I love you. And yes, from our culture's perspective, I have wasted my love on this worthless younger brother of yours. That's what the word prodigal means. Wasteful, prodigal father, prodigal God. Father says, yes, from that culture's perspective, I have wasted my love on him. Now please, oh please, oh please, won't you let me waste my love on you? And when you get that here and here, three benefits I want to tick off really quickly. When we really get the Father's love, three things. First is relief. From striving to prove yourself all the time. Had a conversation a while back with a woman who was going through a divorce. And in the conversation, she kept saying, but I'm a good person. And then she'd list some of her achievements. And then she'd say it again, but I'm a good person. And she kept saying it. So it kind of seemed to me that she didn't quite believe it because she had to keep saying it. So finally, I said, can I give you a different way to look at this? We are all a mixture of good and bad. And we know it. So instead of striving to prove ourselves, how about just admitting that we're not good people. But that we are valued and we are loved. And she said, oh my goodness, that would be such a relief. Yes. And now you're free to achieve and succeed, not to try to prove yourself, but just for the joy of doing something well. Second benefit, when you feel loved, when I feel loved, it's easier to love and accept other people. And then if you look at our country right now, Ferguson, New York, our political conversations, man, regardless of your perspective on all of that, we can all agree it's a tragedy. And it'd be great if we could learn to get along a little better. And then a third benefit, I become different. I follow Jesus' commands not to earn his love, but because I know he loves me, and therefore his commands are meant for my good. Writer Brendan Manning says he is convinced that on Judgment Day, Jesus will ask us only one question. Did you believe that I loved you? So here's your homework for this week. Live loved. loved whether you're a sheep who's wandered off, an elder brother trying to prove yourself, as you sing the Christmas songs, as you hear the sermons, as you reflect on what Christmas means, reflect on this fact that the father you're searching for is searching for you. That's what Christmas is about. Live as though you are loved by the king of the universe because you are, and live that way. And if, like me, you sometimes have some older brother thoughts, you know, a little annoyed that other people don't play by the rules, do do some deep soul-searching and realize that is just as ugly an attitude as anything else. But Jesus pushes past that too, and past our sin, and past our shame, and he says, don't bother me with that stuff. I took care of it 2,000 years ago on a cross. Now, let's you and I go have some fun. I'll close with this. Pastor Matt Chandler tells a story about when he was in college, one of his classmates was a 26-year-old single mom named Kim, who was having an affair with a married man. But he got to know Kim and was able to talk about God's love and His grace and how that affair wasn't doing anyone any favors and was bad for everyone. Matt and his friends would babysit her kid just to help her out. And at one point, Matt invited her to a Christian concert. And in the middle of this concert, there was a brief message where the preacher chose, of all subjects, the evils of sexual promiscuity and decided to talk about sexual promiscuity. And he did it in a terrible way, gave lots of stats about STDs and, you know, kind of scare tactics, stuff like that. And then to make his point, he took a rose and he sort of looked at it. He said, this is fresh cut. Look how beautiful it is. He dramatically smelled it, said, it's just a gorgeous rose. And then he said, see for yourselves, handed it down to the crowd. And then they passed it along and everyone kind of looked at it. He kept talking. In a few minutes, he said, by the way, where is that rose? And he got back this rose, and now it was drooping, and the petals were missing. And and he held up this now kind of mangled, ugly rose. And to make his point about sexual promiscuity, he said, look at this rose now. Who in the world would want this rose? And Matt is thinking about Kim and how she's experiencing all of this. and, And he said it was all he could do to keep from shouting, Jesus wants the rose. That's the point. He made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Well, a few weeks later, Kim asked Matt, do you think I'm a dirty rose? And Matt was able to say, talk about Jesus, how he loves us, how he redeems us, how he frees us, how he makes us new. And she was able to respond to that love and begin to live a different lifestyle, not to prove herself, but because she was loved. That's Christmas. The God who pushes through every barrier to get to us, whether it's our own destructive choices, our religiosity, our shame, or our naive belief that we don't need him because after all we're doing pretty good without him, but of course we're not having nearly the joy, nearly the depth, nearly the fun, nearly the adventure we could have with him. While we were yet sinners, he came down off the porch, down out of heaven, ran toward us, born in a barn, died on a cross so that we could be forgiven, cleansed, set free, and renewed. And he says to you, and he says to me, My son, my daughter, everything I have is yours. Now please, oh please, oh please, won't you let me spend my extravagant love on you? This Advent, live loved. Jesus, easy for me to say, hard for us to actually experience at a deep level, So Holy Spirit, I ask as we go through these next couple of weeks, we hear Christmas songs, we think about Christmas. Lord, help us to get what it's really about. You loved us so much, you left a very comfortable place to come to a very uncomfortable place so that we could be connected with you because you loved us. Lord, help us to realize you don't search for something that doesn't have value. And then, Lord, help us to live out of that. And as Lars prayed earlier, live with joy and abandon so that other people want to know you too. Lord, we cannot do it on our own. It is a supernatural thing. So Holy Spirit, help us live loved. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.